so, as Patois just announced, uh, my name is Abe, or Abraham Lincoln, uh, Abraham Lincoln Lee, and as of today, I am the campus pastor for Wicker Park, which is kind of cool. I've been looking forward to this for a whole week, um, ever since I found out on Monday. We'll find out what that looks like together as a congregation, as a campus, but today, we're going to go back to the book of Titus, because over the past two weeks, uh, Pastor James and Patois, or Pastor Otua, have been preaching on this letter that Paul wrote to Titus. And Titus was Paul's spiritual son, and Titus had been, as a reminder, commissioned uh, to advance the gospel among the Cretans. And last week, if you have not had a ch chance to hear what uh, Otua preached I encourage you, go online. Uh, it's a really great message about uh, instructions that Paul is giving to Titus. But I just want to do a quick review. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, verses 1 through 5, Paul is telling or instructing Titus to teach sound doctrine uh, so that the word of God would not be reviled. And then in verses 6 to 8, Paul is urging Titus to show and be a model of good works so that Titus and, and the church, those whom he's shepherding, would be above reproach. And then in verses 9 to 10, Paul is instructing Titus to practice good faith, to, to wear their beliefs on their sleeves, to, to um, adorn the doctrine of Christ. And he is, is, in today's passage, Paul is explaining the reason, the rationale for all of these actions and their intended results. And it's spelled out in this one really long sentence that Kirsty just read for us today. And we know that from this passage that Paul's intent, his intention here, is to explain the why behind those first 10 verses because simply it starts with the word it's one of those key signposts that we look for when you're reading the Bible. And the reason or the rationale for those first 10 verses can be summed up in this one long verse or sentence with one word, grace. And so in other words, the teaching of sound doctrine, the modeling of good works, and the practicing of good faith is all for and is all by grace. And this passage, see, the grace afforded to us as described in these verses today, it has power, it has beauty, and has complexity. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to dive deeper into an understanding of what God's grace is. And one of the things I will mention is that uh, if you ask and go to any uh, preaching class or something, they always say, start with a story, some sort of uh, uh, cliffhanger type story to capture people's attention and then close out that story at the end of your message. And so I had a, a funny one, uh, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to give it. Uh, I, I'm, it's... I think it's a funny story, but I think I was told that it's not, so I'm not going to share it with you. Um, but I thought it really explained how oftentimes we need more information to overcome misconceptions 
or assumptions or maybe even misinterpretations of things like God's grace. Um, but instead, we're just going to dive right into the passage. If you want to hear this story, just ask me or even my wife, Suzette. Just ask us about the fishbowl story in, from Zambia. Um, and that's enough of a teaser for you. So let's dive into this passage. Verse 11. The very first thing, the very first aspect of grace that I want to point out to you is this. Grace's power is in a person. The first half of verse 11 says this, for the grace of God has appeared. Now, grace is defined as the undeserved or unmerited favor of God. Paul in this passage is pointing out that the word grace is so much more than simply a Christian vocabulary word. Grace is a person to be seen. Now, don't misunderstand either that Paul is not saying that uh, grace started for humanity when Christ appeared. Actually, if we turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses uh, 9 through 10. Let me read that to you. It says this, uh, of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You see, as Paul is saying, saving grace has been active since before the beginning of time. Paul's point again here is that grace is not just a word. Grace is a person to be witnessed. And the grace of God is made alive, the unmerited and undeserved favor of God for us is embodied in his Son, in Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 17 simply states this, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, the unmerited favor of God was made, is made, manifest, is made alive in the words and the actions of the Son of God, in his sayings and in his signs, in his death and in his resurrection. Continuing on with verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, the New International Version, the NIV, which is another translation of the Bible, it actually reads, bringing salvation to all people. With either scenario, Paul is not saying that everyone is going to be saved from hell. What his point is, is that all are given the opportunity for redemption by grace, the opportunity for salvation from sin and death and hell is made effective for those who accept and submit to the grace and truth made alive in Christ. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Paul writes this, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially 
of those who believe. You see, salvation is available to everybody. But Paul is pointing out that it's effective, it's effectual, especially to those who believe. It becomes more than an opportunity, but a reality for God's chosen. You know, in today's passage, verse 14, I just want to focus on a portion of that verse because we're going to come back to it in a bit today. Uh, Towards the end of the passage, he says, uh, to purify for himself, speaking of God, a people for his own possession. I want to focus on that phrase, a people for his own possession. Now, one of the things that I believe is really essential and important when it comes to understanding Scripture is context. Context is king. And so if we consider the original readers of this letter, the original audience, and we look at the original language, we can see that Paul is drawing on a common practice from the day by conquering kings. So you may be familiar with the phrase, to the victor go the spoils. Basically, after a battle, the winner gets to take the spoils of war. But the first choice always went to the king. And so the king would walk through the battlefield after winning this, after his army had won, and point out to something and say, that's mine. Bring that to my house. This is the picture that Paul is painting. This is the image that he's presenting when it comes to a people for his own possession. The king of kings is walking around, sees you, points to you, and says, you are mine. You're coming home with me. And we are a people for God's possession. And grace is available to everyone, but it is only effective to those that God chooses. So verse 11, the very first point, Paul is explaining that the power of grace is pointing us to the person of grace, Jesus Christ. Grace is made alive in the person of Jesus, the Son of God. You know, grace has called us, as Patois talked about last week, to adorn and model sound doctrine. Grace is available to all, but only effective in its chosen. And the power behind all of this is in God's Son. So that's the first aspect of grace that Paul is pointing out in this passage. The second one is this, is that grace transforms us by training us with help from the Holy Spirit. Verse 12, it says this, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Verse 14 It says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. There's a a theologian from the early 1900s. His name was uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was uh, martyred during World War II. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. I just want to read a quote from that book. He wrote, cheap grace is the teaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession, cheap 
Grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. You see, like Paul, Bonhoeffer is trying to explain that grace cannot be cheap. It cannot be of little worth because it's been achieved with no effort and no impact. See, grace is worthless if I don't allow it to do its intended work within me, have its desired effect on my life. If if I, out of my own selfishness, self-centeredness, if I do not submit to the transformative power of grace, it's cheap. And grace becomes valuable. Grace becomes costly when its impact becomes my reality, when, when the effort I am called to make to avoid cheap grace is obeyed, which is my submission. I want you to imagine this. You get a gift, like a, a nice gift. Somebody gives you a brand new car. Or for many of you, instead of a car, maybe a brand new bicycle. I think more of you are bicyclists than drivers. But they come to you with a brand new car and top of the line, but you never put the keys in your engine to start that thing up. Or you never sit in the saddle of that new bike to ride it away. I mean, it's a pretty ridiculous idea. uh, And it would be basically a worthless gift if that were the case. You know, if you, you know, can you imagine if you had a jalopy, a crappy car that everyone could hear coming from a mile away or a bicycle that's being held together by duct tape and prayer, but you still forewent the actual gift given to you? It would be cheap. The gift would be worthless. You see, grace is cheap when I, out of a desire to exercise my own control, Do not allow that transformation to happen. Don't take advantage of the gift given to me. Don't allow it to transform me from the inside out. So if we look at these two verses, we see that grace works by replacing one thing with another. Grace transforms by exchanging the godly the ungodly with the godly. It removes us from lawlessness, as it says in verse 14, to make us pure. And grace creates a desire within us to say no by providing a heart to say yes to something different. See, grace swaps out the worldly for the heavenly, and it supplants the sinful with the sacred. You see, by the work of grace... Now I want to say no to spreading gossip because now I love my neighbor, my brother, my sister, who I realize is now, is created in the image of God like me. By the work of grace, I now want to say no to to sexual sin or immorality because now I want purity. I want to honor the gospel-defined design of sex as God intends. See, by the work of grace, now I want to say no to my self-centeredness, to my greed because I love Christ so much that I am overwhelmed with a zeal to do good works for the people that God has placed me with. You see, 
this work, this transformation that's associated with grace, in verse 12, he tells us it's through training. God's desire, God's design is to transform us by training us. So it's not simply God snapping his perfect fingers, and I can't snap very loud, so I'm not going to try. It's not by him snapping his perfect fingers after you've been dunked or baptized and suddenly shazam, everything is perfect. No. God's perfect and good design of transformation is through a slow, deliberate regimen of disciplined activity and repetition. Now, I, I've never taken a spin class. Um, I think I've seen one on YouTube once. Looks great. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with spin, what I believe it to be is a bunch of people sitting on stationary bicycles while somebody in the front is yelling at them to go faster. What I understand of this is that basically the only way to reap the benefits of such a scenario is to actually do it, to follow the leader. If I were to sit in the back row and simply eat a Three Musketeers bar and just cheer everyone else on, at best all I would get is a sore rear end. Um, because impact requires submission, and results require training. So in the same way, understand that a grace that usurps our godly, ungodly desires and worldly passion, it requires us to submit. It requires us to relinquish our control and let grace replace my current heart with a new heart that seeks to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life. Now, at this point, I may have lost some of you. Um, you, you may be hearing this and thinking, all right, great. Hey, that, those are pretty words. Nice to hear. Um, but practically speaking, how do I do that? How do I avoid a cheap grace? What is this training that you speak of? And I will tell you, honestly, I'm not going to go into that detail. Because I, I think, I know that in this very church, there are so many different examples, practical examples of spiritual disciplines that people are engaging in that help with our own training in Christ-likeness. And if you're looking for something, I beg you to seek those out within this community within this church, within your small group, if, in your, if you're in a discipleship or mentoring relationship, within, with those that you're being discipled by or by those you're discipling. Look for those examples. Uh, and hopefully you can look for those examples by looking at the leadership of Wicker Park as well as Church of the Beloved. But I don't want to go into the specific examples today because I do believe that that would be a whole sermon series in and of itself of how we can live out that training. Instead, I'm going to ask you and encourage you to seek out examples as part of your spiritual journey. This is why we are here as a community. But I do want to leave you with one tidbit, one small example that underpins my personal approach to grace-transforming training. And it's based 
on a practice uh, from ancient Israel, not to sound all mystical or anything like that, but it is uh, something that's uh, been in place since Old Testament times. Basically, every day, the Jews are called, even today, to remember and recite a prayer. It is called the Shema, or Shema Israel. It is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 to 6. Uh, 4 to 5. I'm going to read to you 4 to 6. It's called the Shema simply because the first word here is Shema in, in Hebrew. And the prayer is this. Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you shall be on your heart every morning and every night. The men and women of Israel were called to recite this simple prayer, to remember to love the Lord, their God, our God, with all our heart, to to remind themselves to love the Lord, your God, with all your soul, to cry out, And love the Lord your God with all our might. How do I realize or remind myself of the full impact and complexity and beauty of grace? How do I fall in line with the training that we are called to for grace not to be cheap? For me simply by coming to the Lord regularly in prayer, by, by very intentionally reminding myself with the help of the Holy Spirit of God's love for me, by very intentionally reminding myself of my love for him with the help of the Holy Spirit. You see, in John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus promises us this. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. See, when I remind myself with the help of the promised helper, with the Holy Spirit, when I remember this truth and I fall into that boundless love, into that unmerited favor, that unfathomable grace is through that intentional reminding that I come to a forgiveness that includes repentance, to a communion that includes confession, to a grace based on an empty cross and a living Christ. So verse 11 is pointing us to a grace's power, which is in a person, Jesus Christ. Verses 12 and 14 points out that grace's transformation is through training with help from the Holy Spirit. The last point is in verse 13, is showing us that grace's hope is in heaven. Verse 13 says this, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. A friend of ours, she decided on her 40th birthday, 
she was going to do a triathlon, which my wife and I, Suzette, we, we said, good for you. But in my head, I was thinking, you're going to die. She can run, but she's never swam. Uh, and I don't think she ever rode a bike, much less owned a bike. But she was determined. She had her eye on the prize. She had a hope. She knew that, that she had a target for herself. She wanted to finish this race. She in no way hoped to win the race. She just wanted to cross that finish line and not die in the process. And that was her, her goal. That was her hope. After nearly over six months of training, uh, Suzette and I, we were standing at the start and end of each segment, the, the swimming, the biking, the running parts, amazed, cheering her on and amazed at what she was doing. And suddenly, as she crossed the finish line, overjoyed that she had achieved what she had been working towards, we were astonished. We were amazed. Everything that she had put her hopes in had come to fruition. Her training had a purpose, and by submitting to it, now she could with pride call herself a triathlete, which I will never call myself. Um, but then, training ends. I have to say as a side note, I love the fact that uh, our church seems to be full of very fit, active people, because there are so many examples of, uh, you know, activities that lead to training uh, for the sake of God's glory. So, like, my wife now uh, has a new hope that she has set her eyes on, a mug of hot chocolate and a jacket. And now she is training to do the thing she hates most, run a 5K. And I know there's others who are, who are going to be doing half marathons and marathons, and you have this hope in sight and you're going to be training, I hope, because I don't want you to die either. You're going to be training because you know you have a goal in sight. You see, our training in our spiritual lives also has a purpose. And I'm reminding you of that purpose. It has a hope. And that hope here in verse 13 says, It is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that hope is in a new heaven and a new earth. See, our training will one day end and our hope will become a reality. An upside-down kingdom will return. And it's called an upside-down kingdom. Heaven is given that name because everything we understand, everything we expect is going to be turned upside-down when everything is based on God's design and glorious definition. My wife and I just returned from a short-term mission trip to Zambia. And we were there with a pastor of uh, our former church. His name's Theo. He's the children's ministry pastor there. And our first week in Zambia was going to be focused on the training up and teaching of pastors, elders, and ministry leaders in a community called Kafubu Block, or K-Block for short. Um, these were godly men and women who were, you know, giving their lives for the sake of the gospel and also were literally struggling to just make ends meet. The most common question among all of these men and women was, am I going to eat today? For the pastors in the bush, in this community, 
being a bivocational pastor, being a pastor who has to have a separate job, was default. It wasn't the exception. So they would be going out to the fields to farm or into the woods to cut down trees to make charcoal or knocking door to door to make, do piecework or get odd jobs so that they can make a little money to buy food. And then they would go to preach the gospel. And so we were meeting with local and international volunteers, missionaries, as they were explaining to us the context that these men and women in K-Block were living in. And we're hearing the stories. And at that point, Pastor Theo turned to me and said, we, we need to remind them of what they're striving for. We need to remind them of heaven, their hope. So that's what we did. We basically shifted all our training, all our materials to just focus on heaven. We ignored everything that we had prepared and brought with us originally and decided that the next three days we were going to focus and center around the hope of heaven to remind these leaders of their blessed hope or another way to call it their happy hope that they were striving and training for. And I will be absolutely honest with you. In the comfort of life here in Wicker Park, where I've never known real hunger, I've been hangry at times, and for those of you who have received my hangriness, I apologize. I've been, you know, uncomfortably muggy, but I've never had to question, am I going to survive? Am I going to starve to death? So because basic survival was never in question, the idea of heaven being my goal, my happy hope, to me was easy. Yeah, I I can see that. But I wasn't sure how this would be received in K-Block. I mean, I know that man does not live by bread alone. But I, I just assume that we need some bread. So I was worried and wondering, you know, does the promise of a heavenly future, can it be received when one's earthly present was being interrupted and distracted by a rumbling stomach? I didn't know but we submitted to God's leading. And I will say that I was humbled by the reminder and the power the hope of the gospel affords us. See, I saw that when I stopped trying to control everything, when I allowed grace's power through Christ and grace's transformation through training to take the lead, Then, reminding those who are waiting for Christ, who are waiting for glory, that grace's happy hope is in heaven, it's exactly what needs to be heard. It's exactly what was needed. Because one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
the hope of heaven and the promise of an eternity with Christ, with new bodies on a new earth where there is no more pain and no more hunger, no more crying, no more death, no more gossip, no more pain, no more malice, no more greed. This is the hope Paul is presenting in the gospel. This is the hope we presented to these men and women in Zambia. And this is the hope that is being promised to us here in Wicker Park. See, it is the hope of all God's people for those claimed by God for his own possession with a zeal for good works. And it is the hope that we brought to Zambia, the hope of heaven that brought light and life back to those men and women in Zambia, in K-Block, who now have a desire not only to share the gospel, but to live the gospel, to still, in spite of their own lack, to give to those who were even suffering even more than they were, to the widows and orphans in their community, to internalize grace and to externalize grace in K-Block. See, grace is power, is in a person. That person is Jesus Christ. And grace's transformation is through training with the help of the Holy Spirit. And grace's hope is in heaven with the Father. It's the people of God's own possession. You who God saw and pointed to and said, you are mine. You're coming home with me. We are called to actively engage by waiting for his return. Grace's power and transformation is realized by waiting for our blessed and happy hope. So I want to close today with one question for you. Are you eagerly awaiting for his return? And if your answer is yes, awesome. Thank God, and I want to encourage you to continue training and submitting and helping others train and submit to this truth of grace. But for those of you, if you are one that is not eagerly awaiting, it might be because you haven't yet learned of or understand this amazing hope of heaven that is promised to us. If this is you, I want to encourage you, please take the time to understand what it is you're training for. Because ultimately, discipline without devotion or training without a view of the prize is going to lead to a dryness and a, a legalism that's going to burn you out. It's going to make you lose sight of the gospel. And so I, if, if that's you, I beg you, seek out your small group leader, one of the leaders here at Wicker Park, me. We would love to walk with you so you can recognize this hope that God promises you. Now, maybe if you're one that's not eagerly, eagerly awaiting, maybe you are one that's lost sight of that hope. Maybe you've, your eyes are clouded. And if this is you, I want to urge you, I want to beg you, brothers and sisters, to remember heaven. 
You see, I get it. As Christians, it sometimes is very difficult. It's wearying to train every day. It wears us down. Sometimes a reminder of what it is we are waiting for is absolutely a good and necessary thing. Because, see, our life in this place, in this time, it's not only for good works in Wicker Park. It's not only to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. Trust me, it absolutely needs to include those things, but it is also for our happy hope in the return in glory of our God and Savior. It's, it's for the coming of an upside-down kingdom, a new heaven and a new earth specifically created for God's chosen, for those of his possession. There's a, there, there's a folk singer um, from the 1970s that I listened to. Uh, his name's Keith Green. It's, it's, a, it's a goofy song, but I like the words that he has in the chorus. It, it says this, If this world took six days and that home took 2,000 years, this is like living in a garbage can compared to what's going on up there. If If you've lost sight of that hope, I beg you to open your eyes once again to what God's promising you. If you're one that's not eagerly awaiting Maybe it's because you've never made that decision to accept this hope in your life. If this is you, let me tell you that the opportunity to allow grace, the grace of God that transforms you into one that seeks training through waiting, is available to you now. See, we're justified, we're made blameless in God's eyes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And if today is that day that you are ready to proclaim your faith in Christ alone, if today is the day that you want to cry out to our Savior that his grace might transform you, if, if today is that day that you want to proclaim this happy hope, that he is presenting, I beg you, don't hesitate. Let's pray together. As we enter into a time of prayer, with eyes closed, heads bowed, I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. You guys can start playing. During this time, I want to take a moment to, to address that last question to, to those who, who feel that they are not eagerly awaiting for the happy hope in the return of Jesus Christ. For those of you who are feeling that you've lost sight of heaven, of this hope, who want to rededicate yourselves to the grace that is powered by the person of Christ and, and transforms by training, I want you to, if that's you, go ahead and from your seats, you don't have to do anything, just raise your hand really quickly. Okay, thanks. For those of you who are feeling this way, I want you to come to see me after service, find your small group leader, and allow us to walk with you 
through this process so that you might find hope again. For those of you who are not eagerly awaiting because this is not part of your truth and you want to make it part of your reality now, I want to ask you from your seats, just go ahead and raise your hands really quickly. Thanks. For those of you who are wanting to proclaim this as your truth, I want you to pray with this. Pray with me now. Pray this prayer with me now. God, have mercy on me according to your unfailing love and great compassion. I know that I have sinned against you and cannot save myself. So I come to you to confess and repent of my sin and ask you to create in me a pure heart. By faith, I proclaim that you are the Son of God who dies for me on the cross and rose from the dead on the third day. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, and be my Savior. I'm going to close with this final prayer.